If you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, respect for the speaker who is God speaking to us through his word. Uh, I'm just the reader. Now let's give our attention to God's inerrant word. This is Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, one of his ribs, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We do thank you for the clarity of it, Lord, and yet sometimes the lenses and the glasses through which we look can become so foggy, the windshield of the car that we drive through uh, the journey of understanding the Bible can become so caked with road mud and silt and bugs that we can't see the clarity that it's right outside the window and the beauty and the sunlight and everything that you have given us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to disavow uh, every bad idea and every bad doctrine and every bad way this has been presented to the world as far as our relationships with one another, men and women within the church, and I pray that you would help us to see the beauty and light of this and also the gospel-centered nature of it, that we are representing to the world something so beautiful. We're representing to the world what Jesus is really like how much he loves us, how much he has sacrificed for us, and how we are called to willingly and joyfully submit to that, Lord. So help us to see clearly. We can't see anything in the Bible without your spirit, Lord. So we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds, would give us minds to see and hearts to understand and obey your perfect word as you promise Through the preaching of your word, you will beautify us, your afflicted ones. Lord, help us to be a little more like Jesus when we get through today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I I have a younger cousin who's in her, like, was 
early 20s, and, and I, like, made a terrible Facebook mistake once. I didn't understand the platform, and so I ended up, like, blasting a friend of hers on his own page rather than responding to her personally. Uh, and she, she, she was, the only response she made back was, old people, period, which crushed me, right, because I'm not an old person. I'm only 56, right? The old comes later. However, I'm, I'm kind of having to, like, ah. Uh, come to grips with it. These tech, like social media technologies changed, they're, cha they're changing so fast and adding so many different features to compete with other social media platforms to prove that they're the best, they're the best drug in town that uh, I get confused sometimes on Facebook. And recently I was like watching a video and then I started scrolling again and instead of my feed, I started scrolling through all these videos of, it was like the basic theme was of like young people in relationships and the antics that proceed from that. And it was supposed to be funny videos. Uh, however, I started, I find myself getting like more disturbed and more sad as I went along. And I realized that what I was seeing were these, there was these real uh, patterns of, uh, of clear dominant cultural themes or expectations for relationships that were emerging from all of these videos, right? For, for instance, all the men in the videos were, were wealthy, successful, aggressive, sometimes violent. Uh, they all had fast cars. They all were like, you know, type A. Uh, and to, uh, you know, to at least some extent, they all had 5% body fat and were super yoked, went to the gym, you know, all the time. Uh, and, you know, we're just presenting this image to the world. And the women were all young and beautiful, often hypersexual, also aggressive, super fierce to outsiders, and yet strangely subservient to the men that they were in relationships with. Uh, and the thing that both of them had in common, the women and the men in these videos that ran throughout it was, was that they were really only interested in the other person so long as the other could keep the image up. There was one, there was one, uh, one particular, I think probably the last video that kind of shook me, shook me out of it when I was like, man, there was a guy, he, was, he had a, you know, he had some super fast sports car, he was losing his car and his girlfriend was gonna break up with him because he was losing his car. And, um, man, like, I was like, wow, you know? I, I, I rarely feel my Christian bubble. You know, we all have one, whether, you like, whether we like it or not. Everybody, we've got a Christian bubble. I rarely notice it, but in that moment, I like noticed it. I was like, wow. I was like, what if I, you know, what if that was me? What if I had to worry that Nisa was gonna leave me if I lost the Kia Sorento? You know, I know, it's, I know it's a flashy car. I know the session doesn't really approve of me driving such a luxurious vehicle, but uh, I was like, man, I was like, that's not, I don't, I, that's not even in my, that's not even in my world, you know? I mean, look, I'm a pastor. I see like all y'all's messed up relationships in the church, right? <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> Right? But, and, and man, some of them are messed up. But le at least we've got those, at least we have some categories that we're striving towards, right? 
at least we have these categories of like love and forgiveness and grace uh, and mutual submission and all these things that we're striving for is the goal rather than the dominant theme of the world, which seems to me to be dominance, domination, power, control. They were, they were, like, they were like, like trading each other as commodities for the real goal, which was social power. And this poor guy, he was like, at the one time crushed that his girl was gonna leave him because he was losing his car thinking about how much he loved her, and yet at the very same time, on the other half of his mind, he was looking to one-up over her, you know, if you, you know, by getting maybe a better car, a better job, and so was, did he really love her, or was he, you know, just, was it just all selfish? Was it all dominance? It's so confusing, it's so, it's just crazy, man. And I thought to myself, man, there's this bizarre disconnect bizarre disconnect in that culturally there is an omnipresent cultural narrative of egalitarian equality, absolute equality of men and women, uh, and yet at the very same time, the social media is flooded with videos like that and the art of the culture which reveals our soul promotes and, 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 and songs that are of the, of the most degrading and objectifying nature towards women win favorite song of the year on national award shows uh, and droves and droves and droves of young people seem to be living out and aspiring to the very worst of rap lyric and culture. It's crazy, it's like crazy disconnect, right? It's, it's almost as if the culture is living out everything that it says it hates about biblical relationships, and yet, uh, at the same time, what it thinks it, about biblical relationships are totally wrong. It's totally mystifying. And so maybe, look, maybe you're here, you're visiting... Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a member, and you're not a fan of what you believe the Christian sec- or ethic about of concerning men and women and our relationship towards one another uh, uh, as acts of worship to the Lord. Maybe you're not a fan, but gosh, could anything could anything be worse than what those videos show? Could anything be worse than that? So at least we're not at the bottom of the pile. All right. <laughs> Maybe we can start there and start working our way up. Uh, and I hope, I hope to show something different, that not only is it not the bottom of the pile, but it's when we scrape the mud off the windshield, it, what Jesus says about how we're to re- react with him, respond, and relate to one another is actually quite beautiful. In fact, I think it's, I'm, I'm sold on it, not just because I see it exegetically in the Bible, but because compared to the world and just in my own experience, it is the highest aspirational goal for men and women in relationships, I think. And so I'm I'm hoping to show that today. You know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, let, uh, let him show us, let the Bible show us a more excellent way. And so maybe you'll be surprised to learn
that what the Bible teaches about the relationship between men and women and men and women in general is that men and women are created in equality of being and value and purpose to assume different roles in the created order to reflect the glory of God. And that's the big idea for the passage. That men and women are created in equality of being and value and purpose to assume different roles in the created order to reflect the glory of God. So let's start. Let's start with men and women are created in equality of being, value, and purpose. Now, it's no secret that in the ancient world, at the time the Bible was written, that women were not valued. Women were thought of uh, not just as second-class citizens, but worse than that. For example, in, the, in Babylon, if you, were in the, in, uh, if, you were, if you were in Babylon at the time that the, new, uh, the Old Testament was written, when Genesis was written, uh, the, the, Babylon, the basic Babylonian law code had different strata of society. On the top strata were the amelu, who were the elite, the rulers, the craftsmen, the kings, the royal family, the wealthy, Underneath that was the Mushkanu, who were the free men, regular people, probably landless, but free. Underneath that were the Ardu, or the slaves, and then after the Ardu came women, sort of, depending on where you were in that stratosphere and who you married, because as a woman, really your only value, your only legal rights were, for the most part, based off of your relationship with your husband. On your own, not so much. Uh, the opinion of women in the Old Testament, or the opinion, not in the Old Testament, the opinion of women at the time of the Old Testament is summed up in, a, in a, the Anushasa Parva, the Hindu scriptures, which says, this is one of the gods speaking to a man who's seeking wisdom, and this, this god or this man has just been declared by Lord Krishna to be the wisest of all men who knows all things. Nothing is hidden from him. Uh, and it says that even if highborn and, endu and, en and endued with beauty and possessed of protectors, women wish to transgress the restraints assigned to them. This fault truly stains them. Oh, Narada, there is nothing else that is more sinful than women. Verily, women are the root of all evil. And then it goes on from there to basically say that women must be kept locked up and locked down for their own protection because if they were given any sort of freedom or rights or privileges, they would just run amok in, in culture and create uh, untold problems. This was the world and these were the attitudes towards women into which Genesis was written. Uh, and as we've seen through the, from the very beginning to the end that Genesis 1, the creation story, uh, that God, God's, everything in Genesis is written as a polemic or as an argument that's saying, no, you guys have this totally wrong. That's not how God is. That's not what God thinks of you. This is not why you were created. God has uh, created everything on, by himself, by the word of his power. It wasn't a primordial battle between warring capricious gods. God created mankind not to be slaves, but to be kings over the earth. God created mankind not to, to be in relationship, in intimate fellowship with him. 
All these things are polemic. It means they're arguments against the bad religious ideas of the time. And the same is true for this. This would have been a shocking polemic into the ancient world to suggest that women were created also in the image of God and that women had equal value and that women had equal purpose and were part of the cultural mandate to have dominion over and subdue the earth. Shocking. Ancient Near Eastern people would have just slammed the book and walked out on us right there. And yet here we have it. Women are created in, equal, in the equality of being. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Making sure we understood this isn't just man in the image of God. Man and woman are both image bearers of God and have infinite worth and dignity, infinite equality of being because of that thing. In the ancient world, any talk about the image of God was reserved only for kings. And then the scale went down from there, kings, and then the elite, and then the freemen, and then the slave, and then the women. To suggest that women were bearers of the image of God was utter blasphemy. Uh, it was a radical departure from how people thought. Uh, women were created in equality of value. Uh, Genesis 2, 22, listen to what this says. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. The word rib, is the, that's the only place in the entire Bible that it's translated as rib. And I think, it's, I think they got it right. I think they're talking about a rib. However, there's the word, it actually means side. Uh, and it's used 40-some times in the Bible. Once it, twice it's used for rib. Once it's used for the spine of a hill. Every place else, it's used for the side of the Ark of the Covenant, the side of the temple, the side of the tabernacle. It's always used in, the, in terms of sacred architecture. And what, what, is, what is the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of God, right? When Jesus comes to earth, he is the locality of the dwelling place of God. When Pentecost comes and the spirit of God is democratized or spread out through the entire church, the church we become the dwelling places of God. And that's what this is suggesting, that men and women are both the dwelling place of God. And in that, we have infinite value, inequality of value. And finally, uh, we're created in equality of purpose. That them, uh, that them that we just read in 127 is so important because, listen, right before that in verse 26... And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all creation. Now, if that had said, and let him have dominion over all creation, that would set up a different scenario. But it doesn't. It includes women. Men and women together have the purpose, uh, and the purpose given by God to, uh, to carry out this cultural mandate of, sub, uh, of subduing and having dominion and rightly ruling in the image of God as image bearers, ruling over all creation together. Uh, and so, in the very beginning, the first thing we see is that there's an equality. And that's the foundation. 
from which we build off of. Everything else we say about men and women has that solid foundation that in the eyes of God, men and women are equal in being, equal uh, in uh, value, and equal in purpose. And it's totally different than the way the world thinks about people. In the world, what, is, what gives you your value? What gives you, uh, you know, what gives you your dignity? What gives you, what gives you value? It's what you do. I mean, even when we say, when we ask somebody, what's the first question you ask somebody? What do you do? Why are we saying that? We're judging. We're trying to take an assessment. How educated are you? How smart are you? How industrious are you? How wealthy are you? Uh, you know, what are you, what's your character like? All those things are wrapped around that question. In the world, people are assigned value, for the most part, based on what you can do. Uh, and in the course of relationships, you better be able to consistently do that because the minute you can't do that for me in a way that builds my social power, I'm out. But we see in the Bible a totally different foundation. People have value. People have a quality in being because of who we are in Christ, because of who God has made us to be. We have value because we have the image of God, uh, because we are the dwelling place of God and because we share in the same purposes. However, Nisa, car is still running? Okay. God has called us to submit to him in different roles in the created order. God has called us to submit to him by submitting to one another in very specific roles within the created order. Let me ask you a question, theologians. Who's better, God the Father or God the Son? Uh, neither? Okay. Good answer. Neither Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They have equality. Uh, yeah, but what about this verse? Jesus also consistently said, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus lived his life in perfect submission to the will of the Father. He never did his own will. He always did the will of his Father who sent him. What do we do with that? How can there be equality and submission at the same time? Uh, it's because in the Godhead, they have what we call an equality of being, and yet they have different roles, right? The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent, he comes, he dies to pay uh, the ransom for his people. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation. They each have different functions, they have different roles, and yet they're all equal in substance equal in power and glory. Right, girls? We're learning the confession at the house. We're singing the songs, you know. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, it's easier for us to see that with God. We can go, oh yeah, I can totally see that with God, but when we bring it down into us imaging that God, then it gets sketchy. It gets hard for us because why? The church has been so overrun, and the ideals of Christian 
virtue, having so overrun with the virtues and the, and the vices of the world and the categories of power and dominance that when we see the word lead and we see the word submission, we automatically think better, worse. Better, not so better. <laughs> we see it in terms of competence. Who's the best? And in, a, in, a, in an economy of power and dominance, that makes total sense. Right? Who can dominate the field? Who can outplay the other players? Who can uh, you know, do this the best? That's how the world works. But it's not, that's not how, that's not how the, the church works. The church does not base, uh, our, it doesn't base things on competence or the values of dominance. It bases things on calling what God has called us to do in his wisdom and in his word. And so it's based on principles of love, principles of mutual love to one another. How do we love one another? Uh, and so what do we see? Where do we see these different roles being played out? Look, if you, if you take anything home from this entire series, I want you to, to take one thing home, and that is that Created order means something. We hit this hard, uh, you know, when we were talking about uh, some of the early, you know, earlier chapters of Genesis, how God reveals his will to us in how he creates, in what he creates, in the obvious functions of those things, and in the order that he creates. The way he orders things in creation is his revealed will. How do, you, how do we honor God and give him thanks? By living according to the order that God has revealed. And so what do we see? First, we see Adam created first. Uh, that's, that's a big deal in Scripture. Uh, second, we see uh, women as created as a helper. Um, to help the man. Now, again, here we run into a problem, right? We see that word helper and we automatically think disparity. We're thinking in categories of dominance and categories of power. But the word helper uh, is used uh, a couple times in this capacity and 14 times in, the, in the, the rest of the Old Testament. It's talking about the help that the Lord God gives his people, right? Listen to Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So what does it imply? It doesn't imply this disparity of competence and incompetence or this you know, disparity between positions and ability. It implies a help that is strong, that is full of wisdom, strength, reason, holiness, an agent of sanctifying power. Uh, and support. It's a strong, Kathy Keller calls it a strong support. Uh, and then third, we see Adam naming Eve, or naming woman. Uh, in the, what do we see in Genesis 1? We see God in his authority, exercising his authority over creation by naming everything. Genesis 2, we switch gears. We're now focused on man. We see Adam given that same right to name everything, including woman. And that naming is, is, is God giving that, is, is representative of authority in Adam. God gives Adam authority to name his wife. It's, 
it's completely different than how he just named, he names all the animals. However, we know that Eve is not in that category because both of them are given dominion over all creation. And the two stories are totally different, right? When God brings woman, he literally breaks forth in poetry. It's the first poetry of the Bible. He sings a song of joy, uh, rejoicing over this woman that God has given him. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's clearly to see that it's poetry. Uh, and so we see that that naming is Adam's authority not to have dominion over Eve, but to be the leader, to have headship in the relationship. Uh, and then, you know, so then when we see every time the important passages in the New Testament where it talks about the continuing roles of women and men in marriage and in the church, Paul goes back to these creational mandates, this created order to back up his arguments. A lot of times people will say, well, it's a cultural thing. In the culture of Ephesus, women were, women were tr like crazy, and so he had to put these specific rules in, in place just for Ephesus, but it was a cultural thing, and the inclusivity and the progression of the New Testament of being more and more inclusive allows us to see this progression where, uh, you know, women and men have this complete equality, and we, we agree men and women have this complete equality, and yet whenever Paul makes these arguments in the New Testament, he doesn't go, he's not making cultural arguments, which are pretty easy to see. He's going back to created order. And he's saying these are roles that God has given us to fulfill in order to glorify him. Uh, and remember, if we cite, when we bring in that, when we bring in the rogue, or uh, we bring in the idea of culture, if it's possible for the, for the New Testament times to be culturally conditioning texts, it's also just as, uh, just as equally plausible that our culture uh, is influencing the way we see the text. So keep that in mind. Paul quotes created order. And so therefore we know this is a lasting and continuing thing. Uh, so look, what does it look like? <laughs> and here's where, we get, here's where it gets dicey, man. We're, we're trying to figure out what this looks like in the context of millennia of, of brutal selfishness of brutal power dynamics and domination uh, of men and women warring against one another and honestly of men being brutally selfish and misusing their power as men. So let's start with men. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a, I'm gonna like go out on a limb here and think and, and guess most of the guys here, have you seen Band of Brothers? No? Am I gonna lose here? Am I gonna lose big time? Okay. All right. Well, look, in Band, in the, the Band of Brothers is a miniseries about Easy Company in World War II, a, an infantry division that, that, that came uh, into, uh, on D-Day, landed in uh, an Operation Market Garden, and then went through the Battle of the Bulge, and it, tra it, it chronicles. That's a true story. And the first leader, the first company commander that easy company had was a guy named was 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 a guy named Sobel. It became Captain Sobel, and Captain Sobel was despised by his men because he led with fear and control and intimidation, and he tried to break other men down so that they would do his will. And the result of that was they 
the staff sergeants joined together and planned a mutiny to get rid of him. Conflict and war between them. He was replaced. The mutiny brought attention to the upper brass that Sobel was not uh, the best guy for that role, and he was replaced eventually by Major Winters. And Major Winters is portrayed and shown in, through, the, through the whole series as a guy who led the troops sacrificially. He put himself on the line and put himself in danger first. He made sure that the troops and his, the men under his command knew that he cared about them and would protect them when it came, when it came down to it. And so they knew that they loved, he loved them, he was protecting them, he was overseeing them, he was putting his own self in danger and to protect them and to put them first. Uh, and they all willingly submitted to him and to his rule and to his leadership. They were grateful for it because he was a good leader. And so men, that's, I mean, that's a great model for us, right? If you are worried about getting your wife to submit, you've already lost. You've already lost. You've already lost the principles. You've already lost, the, you've lost it, man, because that's not what we're called to do. We are called to submit to Christ uh, by living and being worried about being sacrificial and loving and serving our wives in the way the Bible calls us to. There's this great uh, teaching, teaching, it's an hour-long lesson by uh, Jackie Hill, Jackie and uh, Jackie Hill Perry and Preston Perry, her husband. Jackie Hill Perry is a, a Christian spoken word uh, artist and, uh, and a speaker. Uh, formerly gay, ended up meeting a man and was, became married. And she says, man, she says, in this, in this teaching, talking about this, she was like, as far as a man who was like willing to submit to Christ and love her and protect her and, and put himself uh, and sacrifice himself and his wants for her good and for her growth. Uh, she was like, I had never met a man like that in my life. Not my father and not anyone I'd ever met. Everybody I'd ever met was trying to like put me on this, you know, in the lyrics of their favorite rap song and use me up and spit me out. And why would I ever do something as crazy and foolish as to put myself under the authority of a man like that. Uh, and so she said, Preston, her husband, she said, he didn't make it easy, but he made it possible by his character, by the way he loved her, by the way he sacrificed for her, by the way he uh, provided for her, by the way he put her first, her interests first, her holiness first, her good first. He lived it out and although it wasn't easy for it, it was at least possible. And so maybe that's a good, good role for us, right? If we can't make it easy, let's try to at least make it possible in the minds of our, of our wives. Uh, and submission, what does this even mean, submission? It's, you know, we, talk, we did a, a little bit of this in a, in a sermon on Colossians a little while ago. I pointed out that submission is different than blind obedience. God is not calling women to just have blind obedience 
to, uh, to their husbands. Women are called out of reverence for Christ to submit to your husband's leadership uh, in specific ways, right? Jackie says in the, in the, it's this great moment where she's like, she's like, you're not called to submit to your husband's vain ambitions. <laughs> you're not called to submit to your husband's idolatry. <laughs> you're not called to submit to your husband's foolish plans that are going to financially destroy your family. <laughs> you know? You are called to submit to Boaz. To a man of God who's seeking to serve you, not to any of his brothers. Broke ass, drunk ass, lying ass, cheating ass, uh, ratchet ass, and certainly not bicho ass. You are called to submit to a godly man who is... <laughs> Did I just say that out loud? Church. Oh, God. Called, you're called to submit to a specific thing, which is what? You're called to submit and to help to use all of your God-given power, your wisdom, your strengths, your gifts, your intelligence, your intuition, everything that you've got to help your husband to glorify God. To help him fulfill his role. And so sometimes being sub in that submissive role means what? You say, no, honey, uh-uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. That would be destructive to us and to our family. Uh, you know, respectfully... But it's not a blind obedience. You're called to hold that position of submitting in that position of using all of your, all of your, all, all that you have to support the husband as he leads, right? And there's some, it's not about competence. It's about calling. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in the position where you would do a way better job than your husband's doing. Nisa, can I get an Amen. And in that role of support, use your strength and your wisdom to help him. There's, there's such, it is such a strong version of help. Nisa has this, uh, you know, this great example of this one pastor was trying to give examples of what kind of help women give us. And he's talking about all the stupid things this pastor did that almost killed him, like that his wife had to come and save him from. Uh, because why? She was lending her wisdom and power and strength and beauty uh, and help to her husband, okay? And sometimes that means you trust God and you hold your position, but this, there's, there's, this is clear. This isn't a tertiary issue. This isn't a side thing. It's not something that we can kind of take or leave. The Bible says one of the primary women's that, ways that women glorify God one of the primary ways that God has called you to honor him and give him thanks and reflect his glory into the world is to hold that position and to fulfill that role as his mission in the relationship. Now look, now let's go, just real quick, go back to the, can you imagine, can you imagine a society or a world 
where men and women were relating to one another in that way. They both recognized and appreciated each other's strengths and values and abilities. Uh, and they held those divinely ordained roles in such a way that they worked together in a unified front to solve problems and to overcome obstacles together and to raise families and to create strength uh, and to mutually love and respect one another. And they held those positions. Can you imagine what that would be like in contrast to, in contrast to what the world has to offer? The fruit that could come from that, the witness to the world that might come from that. That's what that one flesh means. That we work together in the roles that God has assigned us in these divine purposeless purposes and this frictionless unity uh, as a unified whole, working together, uh, reflecting the triune God into the world and how he is. What would that be like, man? That's the what and the how of it, but what about the why? Why do we do this? To glorify God. It's the last point. We do it to glorify God. I think glorify is like a Christianese word. It's, it's kind of abstract. It, it has something to do with God. But we don't really use it in everyday language, so nobody really knows what it means. We're like, yeah, I'm glorifying God. I know that's good. I don't know what it is, but I'm doing it. Right? But glor- listen, the simple, simple definition is glorify is making somebody look good. Glorifying God means we make him look good to the culture around us, right? We just, my sister just called us. And, and said, hey, you know, my, our kids like to go over there and visit with her and spend the night. My sister called us and said, hey, do, my, do your kids, do they really like to come over here? Because as soon as they get here, they just miss you guys so bad. They, you know, it's obvious like, that they just love you and love to be with you. That, that was like their actions and what they were doing like displayed like what, how tight we are and how much we love one another and love being with one another. And that like made us look good. That was glorifying, right? Uh, in the same way, that's what we're supposed to be doing, living our lives in such a way according to God's purposes and according to God's orders so that we make God look good, right? Now, what's the devil up to? What's the devil's basic plan? To make God look bad. The one thing devil's trying to do is make God look bad. And so it's no surprise that there has been tons of shade dumped onto these doctrines. Because if you make these things that the Bible speaks about look bad, you make God look bad, you make God look bad, people don't want to have anything to do with him. People don't want to have anything to do with him. They willfully reject the salvation that is available in Christ. And so it's kind of a big deal, right? Our marriages are supposed to give the world a picture of what Jesus is really like and what we our response to that is. And so look, going back to you, listen, Paul says uh, in the gospel reading, at the end of Ephesians 5, he says this, after talking all about husbands and wives, he says, he kind of like hits the corner and he's like, actually, the mystery of this is profound, but I'm speaking ultimately, not about husbands and wives, 
but I'm speaking about Christ and his church. What does that mean? Think, what does that passage say? What does Jesus do for us? How does Jesus treat us? He loves us. And that's biblical love, not how you make me feel, not you make me feel warm and fuzzy, not you help get me social power. That's he has sacrificed himself for our benefit because he loves us, because he wants to, because his joy is to do that. He's given himself up for us on the cross. He put himself in our position and suffered the death that we deserved so that we would never have to die. Uh, it says he's, he, Jesus, sanctifies us. How many of you thought you were sanctifying yourselves? <laughs> Not anybody that's thought about it too much, right? Jesus is sanctifying us. Jesus is cleansing us through his word. Right now that's happening. Jesus promises to present us to himself in the heavenly realms in splendor without a single moral blemish. He nourishes us in the Lord's Supper and through the preaching of the word and through prayer. And he cherishes us, all of that, at great personal cost to himself. And what does the church do in response? The church willingly submits to Jesus as head of the church as an act of worship and an act of gratitude and thanksgiving. And those are the models. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what Jesus is really like. God has called us to hold these positions uh, so that we can be our marriages like a living picture of what Jesus is really like and how the church is responding to that to the world around us. Now, is that like profoundly convicting? Do I say that as like anybody, you know, as somebody who's not miserably failing at this? That's a terrifying thought. What if someone, you know, what if someone got their idea of what Jesus is really like based on how you treat your wife? I mean, really treat your wife. The stuff that just you and your kids see. That's a terrifying thought. What if someone were to judge how the church responds by the way you treat your husband? It's a terrifying thought. I totally get it. But we have those categories that are so much better uh, than power and domination and trading each other like stocks to, to one-up one another and, and to gain social power. There's profound conviction, but there's also profound opportunity to glorify God and to make God look good as we strive after these, orde- after these ideals. We show the world how profound Jesus' love for us is. We show the world what worship looks like, uh, what willing submission looks like as we in- engage in these different roles, working together to glorify God and to enjoy all of his benefits and blessings together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your your word.
Lord, it's so hard to get this right, to understand it. Uh, the sin in our hearts that is always trying to get out and the sin in the world that is always trying to get in has corrupted these principles so badly and defaced them so badly they're just hard to understand, Lord. I pray you would help us to see these things um, as divinely inspired. We pray that you would help us to respect uh, the created order as your wisdom and to live in it, Lord, as, a, as an act of worship to you as we serve each other by holding 